The Deal with Yield is a podcast series covering the issues that matter most in crop production. Tune in to episodes on iTunes and thedealwithyield.com. Welcome to The Deal with Yield with our host, Joel Whipperforth, Director of eBusiness for Winfield United, and John Zook, Agronomist for Winfield United. In the last episode, we primarily discussed corn management and 2018 tissue sampling results. Joel, let's open it up with soybeans. John, this year, yield on soybeans, uh, you said, what was the range on yeah, soybeans? So 45 to 75, but I'd say high 50s, low 60s. High 50s, low 60s. You know, I, I keep seeing in answer plots that like five years ago, we maybe had one or two varieties that were above 100 bushels. And now it seems like it's just more commonplace that the top end yields of 100 bushels or more are coming out on soybeans. What are the pieces that are going right on this fall on those growers that had high yield soybeans? So talking averages was one thing, but if if you're going to look at some high yield acres, there's definitely high yield acres out there. And you got to get a few things right with soybeans. First off is a lot of times we're still fertilizing for two years and we're not putting fertility down for soybeans. So recognizing that you got to make sure that the fertility is there for soybeans is going to be the first place or the platform that you're going to build upon. And then my thing is, is soybeans can never have a bad day. With our indeterminate varieties, we're flowering for a month, month and a half of time frame. And when we're putting those flowers on and putting them on as pods we can't be aborting any of those flowers so making sure that it never has a bad day and sometimes that means multiple applications through the field through the season so that could be a challenge just operationally by itself but when we get to that point that's where we're experiencing some some of the highest yields so a lot of times on soybeans we see some nutrient deficiencies we see a little bit of manganese deficiency some potassium deficiencies but one of the things that popped up this year on some of the national now national perspective copper deficiency. Yeah, so my three favorite, copper, potassium, and manganese and soybeans. And roll the dice, which one's it going to be next year? I don't know. The one thing that I will try to encourage everybody to look at is copper shows up. It's important. It's going to help move things through the soil. It's also going to help with photosynthesis and electron transport, that sort of thing. But it's kind of like a little bit of a flash in the pan because when I look at nutrient hierarchy and elemental prominence, it's a little ways down there. So going back to the nutrient hierarchy, elemental prominence, when I'm talking micronutrients, manganese is the biggest hitter. And so if I was going to pick one nutrient that I know would always show up on that roll in the dice case, probably manganese. And so I try to target that from an in-season approach. Potassium, I mean, look at the root structure, look at our soil type. I, sometimes I think as we get higher up in yields, we're always going to be deficient in potassium. But knowing when and how much to feed is probably going to help maximize that and build the platform. Yeah, I, I think one of the things that's tricky about the potassium numbers in particular on soybeans is if you go back to that plant and you dig it up and maybe you didn't have a seed treatment on there, oftentimes missing that, you might get a disease that unfortunately just doesn't kill that plant. It just survives long enough and it winds up putting out all these lateral roots. Sometimes where I find that you've got a potassium deficiency is actually where you're missing that main tap root. And it's amazing how much less root surface area you have to uptake a major nutrient like potassium because you didn't have a seed treatment, you lost your tap root, and because you don't have a tap you end up with a macronutrient deficiency in soybeans. 
Yeah. So Joel, I believe everything you said and here's why I believe it. I've let you borrow my shovel a couple times and you've always returned it with a broken handle. <laughs> so I know that you're digging your roots correctly. And that's very well said. That's so I mean, needs the best chance I possibly can to put out those roots and starting with a seed treatment is, is the way to do that. I think I actually still have one of your shovels. It's not broken. I just never returned it. Well, it's marked. So I will know if I ever see it. I'll make sure to get that serial number off of there. Moving into uh, one of my favorite crops. Uh, Cows love it. I love it. Alfalfa. You know, alfalfa nutrient management, when you're on the dairy, milk prices have been really tough this year to get around. What's my nutrient strategy for dairy farming, for any alfalfa growers that are out there with the current cattle and milk prices? So I think the first strategy in alfalfa is treating that acre like it's sacred. Remember, so nutrient-wise, that's one thing, but remembering we have to make several passes across that acre. Every time we make a pass, we probably cause some stress, which then in return causes nutrient stress and affects our crop that way. So starting with that platform, making sure that every trip across that acre is going to be sacred, then you can start managing nutrients. Some generic things that I will recommend is I always like to wake it up and put it to bed. So what I mean by making sure you're making a fertility application in the spring, waking it up, and then making a fertility application in the fall, putting it to bed, is probably the right way to start to treat alfalfa. Some of those nutrients with alfalfa, I pick the ones that I feel most comfortable that they're going to respond. Alfalfa is a really awesome crop. I feel like it's probably the most responsive. We talked about corn. We talked about beans. Half the time I'm searching through data going what works and what doesn't. But when I look through alfalfa, I can get that thing to almost respond a lot of the times. So I pick the ones that I like that respond. And most of the time it's going to be potash. So potassium, sulfur, and boron are going to probably be my biggest three with alfalfa, meaning maybe some other nutrients depending upon where you're at. I think one of the things that's interesting about alfalfa compared to some of the other volumetric commodity crops like a bushel of soybeans, a bushel of corn, is that you can more dynamically increase not only the tonnage, but also the components that go into it, protein, the digestibility. What are some areas where you've had nutrient interactions after a tissue sample where you've changed the outcome of the components of that alfalfa? Yeah, so I, I mean, I just go back to basic uh, chemistry there, and it's nitrogen and sulfur seem to interact the most, and that's just making protein, right? So that's our protein source. And I mean, other nutrients affect those uptakes. So by no means I'm, I'm saying go apply a bunch of nitrogen in your alfalfa. We know it's a legume crop, but how do you manage that? And that goes back to, well, how well are those nodules going to form and how well are those roots going to grow if we're driving over it when it's wet and not harvesting at the right time? So the fertility part with alfalfa goes all all the way back to how we're treating that through the season. Now, in a couple cases, we got a little bit desperate and or greedy, and we take a cutting late to remember putting it to bed and waking it up are probably the most vital components to have in a health alpha stand. Yeah, certainly winterizing those roots with some potassium so that they can make a, a good, strong, healthy recovery next spring is important. You know, you mentioned traffic on the acre, and I know that Harvextra has been out now for a little while longer, so you've got some different experiences with growers taking less cuttings per year or letting their alfalfa go a little bit further into maturity before cutting. What are the Harv Extra insights for this fall? So 
definitely like, I mean, it's working great, just like what we expected. It's still kind of a learning curve because of just being a dairy farmer myself. You kind of go, geez, uh, I'm going to really let that stand and, and risk whatever. And it just, we got to remember to, to trust the data, the information, the technology that it's okay to have a little less traffic, free up some time there, and also lengthen that cutting schedule a little bit to gain some more tons and still have the digestibility that you would have by cutting that alfalfa crop early. So we're learning how to manage that, but it's performing as expected. And I'm really excited to see the longevity of it as we get a few more fields out and long-term, how that might be a survivability issue. Are we seeding more Harv Extra fields next year? Certainly. So a lot more Harv Extra fields next year. Got the chance to visit quite a few this summer here. And response-wise, uh, doing some trials uh, with some foliar applied products on those fields, response-wise, looks just as great. So now we can get a response, increase some of the trifoliates, increase some of the stem diameter, and we don't have the consequences of those increases that we would have on conventional alfalfa. It's really interesting you talk about that Harv Extra piece from a technology standpoint, from an ag tech standpoint. It seems to me there's some more growers getting the harvest labs put on their self-propelled forage harvesters. We're just for the first time getting a geospatial view of the variability across the field from both a tonnage standpoint and also from a component standpoint. I know you've looked at a couple of these maps. What are some insights that farmers are seeing from the geospatial information coming out of alfalfa? So the biggest hit is looking at how much yield you actually pulled off versus how much nutrients you're putting back. And that's kind of like an eye-opener for a lot of guys going, wow, I didn't realize that spot yielded so much, and here's how many pounds of K I got to make sure I put back. It's not just about putting 5,000 gallons out and down anymore, you know, and spreading over the top. It's about making sure that you got some serious pounds because we know that those acres can respond. So I think that's the eye opener that we're seeing. And it's a great way to then manage. Uh, There's definitely areas where we're probably putting too much on then. So it's having the next opportunity to apply precision agriculture and technology for that matter to get that overall response across those acres. Now for farmers that don't have the geospatial component or the ability to use a, a yield monitor on their forage harvester, the R7 tool, actually there's uh, one of my teammates in uh, Wisconsin has been doing some variable rate fertility work down there just using biomass. Being it's a forage crop, turns out R7 tool utilizing biomass, we're going out and we're estimating tonnage by just taking some measurements and then converting that over to how many inches equals how many tons. And then we're going by removal there. And without having to collect any yield data from a geospatial component, we're actually being able to make some verberate nutrient interactions there. Again, not over applying where the nutrients aren't being taken off, but also putting back where they are really being taken off. Yes. Yeah, so validation on that R7 tool in-season imagery. We've done some extensive work here in southern Minnesota as a team looking at going through the field, counting plants per acre, doing a stem count, so stem density, and then looking at height versus the different colors on the map and definitely relates to yield and response by removal. So you can certainly make that fertility reclamation if you don't have the necessarily the ability of that harvest lab. Absolutely. R7, helping your alfalfa crop be successful. I probably ask this once a year, but as we look at seed, fungicide, pesticide, herbicide, fertilization, how much farther do you think we can go with technology in these areas? Do you still think there's a long way to go when it comes to improvements, uh, advancements, especially when we look at seed and all that has happened within the past uh, years, 10 years or so? Yes, so I guess without spilling too many of the beans, 
I think there's a long ways to go. And I think most of it is the scary part of getting there. It's trusting the information. It's building confidence in the recommendation. And I've been teaching myself some or trying to practice some of those things of going, oh, geez, uh, am I really, truly over applying? At the end of the year, am I going to get fired because we didn't make enough yield in that field because we were nutrient limiting? Are there going to be weeds that escape here because we overdid or underdid something? I mean, so I think we have a long ways to go uh, as far as implementing and using that. And we're probably not using the technology to its fullest potential and we need to start recognizing that and the ability to do that is just practicing and testing for yourself to build overall confidence that would be my answer to that one yeah i think one of the things when you ask the question of how much further you know it's only so much fun to haul grain to town when it's not profitable the thing that growers are going to focus in on right now is they're going to focus on inputs per bushel and one of the key pieces on that is the last bushels that you get are the most sustainable ones. Take, for instance, fungicide. When you look at that crop of corn, you've got all the fixed costs of planting, seed, nitrogen, all out there. And those last bushels, the incremental, you know, our hybrid response to fungicide is zero to 37 bushels. So say you pick up 20 bushels by putting out a uh, $20 per acre application, you're looking at those are the bushels that cost you the fewest cents per bushel, that the last bushels are oftentimes the most sustainable ones. You've been listening to The Deal with Yield with Joel Whipperforth, Director of eBusiness for Winfield United, and John Zuck, Agronomist for Winfield United. For additional episodes of The Deal with Yield, visit iTunes and thedealwithyield.com. 